Hello, everyone, and welcome to Edge Talk Radio. This is Angela Zabel. That's me, and I am talking with Paul Smith today. It is going to be a fun time because we are going to be talking about remote viewing, the Stargate program. There is so much to unpack today. So, who am I? I am Angela Zabel, and I have been connected to spirit and working with the team and the non-physical my entire life, sharing messages with a multitude of realms with people. And I am a teacher, coach, a medium, radio show host, writer, retreat host, gallery reader, speaker, and I do online and private group sessions, offering guidance, mediumship, intuition, speaking engagement, and sharing knowledge with others. And I've worked with people throughout the world. I can be found on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, write for Edge Magazine, host Edge Talk Radio, and also Amazing Soul with Voice America's Empowerment Channel. You can find out more about me at AngelaZabel.com. And Edge Magazine is who is hosting this program, and they are the leading events and media resource dedicated to all aspects of holistic living, health, and wellness, and the mysteries beyond sharing information wisdom resources and committed to promoting businesses organizations and individuals who support our collective journey to wholeness and balance you can find out more about edge magazine at edgemagazine.net so today i have paul smith and he is from cedar city utah and he is i'm going to go through his background and i will be reading it because it was a lot to read tonight he is the longest serving controlled remote viewing CRV teacher active today. He began his career as a remote viewing instructor in 1984, and he served for seven years in the government's Stargate remote viewing program at Fort Meade, Maryland from September 83 to August of 1990. The, he started in 1984. He became one of the only five Stargate personnel to be personally trained as remote viewers by the legendary founders of the remote viewing, Ingo Swan and Dr. Harold Putnam. And I have met, I, I got the chance to meet Dr. Putnam and he is so much fun. No, no, <laughs> put no, 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 it's put off. Put off, I just, I just like, it's put off, I'm sorry. <laughs> so you, Paul is also the primary author of the government remote control, remote viewing, Programs CRV training manual and served as a theory instructor for the now CRV trainee personnel, as well as the source recruiting officer with the security officer and unit historian, which I love the historian part of it. That is so cool. And he went on to teach remote viewing to such well known personalities as Lynn Buchanan, Mage Ralph, I can't even, May Riley. Is that correct? Mel, Mel Riley. Mel Riley and David Morehouse. And Paul is credited with over a thousand training and operational remote viewing sessions during his time with Stargate. So he was raised in Boulder City, Nevada. He enlisted in the Army in 1976 for Arabic training. He attended the officer candidate school and was commissioned as a military intelligence officer. Besides his tour in Fort Meade, his military assignments included Arabic linguists, linguists, 
electronic warfare operator, strategic intelligence officer for a special operations unit, a Mideast desk officer, tactical intelligence officer, and the collections director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, and the chief of the intelligence and security division for the military district of Washington until he retired in 1996. And I don't know if he actually retired. I'm questioning that one though. <laughs> I retired from one thing and moved on to something else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he has a, a bachelor's in Brigham Young University, and I have read his, his dissertation. I've read part of your dissertation. Very interesting. So we're going to get into a little bit of that today. And he is in the Mideast Affairs, Art and English, MB from the National Intelligence University, Mideast Concentration, PhD in Philosophy from the University of Texas, Austin. And he is specializing in consciousness and the philosophy of science and the philosophy of the mind, which I find that so very interesting because the mind is something I think is uncharted territory that we are exploring. He and his work, as a remote viewer, have been featured on television programs as CBS Sunday Morning, the Arts and Entertainment Networks, the Lowell Files, and the Unexplained, several History Channel programs, Sci-Fi's, the Joe Rogan's Questions Everything, non-German television. On numerous occasions, he has been a guest on the Coast to Coast program with George, with George Norrie and Art Bell, and has interviewed with Whitley, Stryber, and Bill, and many others. He's also been featured on the bonus, he has on bonus material on the DVD release on the film Suspect Zero, which I have not seen. I'm looking forward to it, <laughs> which was starring Ben Kingsley, Aaron Ackert, and Carrie Ann Moss. So he's also an author and his book, Reading the Enemy's Mind Inside the Stargate, America's Psychic, Psychic Espionage Program which was in 2000 and 2005. It's also the essential guide of remote viewing and the secret military remote perception skill anyone can learn, which I have right here. So thank you very much, Paul. Awesome book. <laughs> and also it is, he has, we're almost done with his background. Then we're gonna get into questioning him. He's also a veteran of Desert Storm and I appreciate your service. He retired from the military in 1997, and then he went on to his next job. He founded it and is president of the Remote Viewing Instructional Services. It's now based in Cedar City, Utah, offering remote view training and basic through advanced levels. He has courses for the individuals and small groups, and he also works in the nonprofit International Remote Viewing Association. And he is also a life member of the American Society of Dowsers, professional member of both the parapsychological, did I say that right? <laughs> Association and the Association of Scientific Exploration. He's currently serving as a member of the board of directors for both the Pennsylvania and Orion Research Center and is associate editor for the Journal of Scientific Explorations. There's a lot to unpack with Paul. He also, I'm going to do a little segue, he also plays guitar, he sings, he has a great sense of humor, and I am going to do a full disclosure. I did personally work with Paul out in Cedar City, Utah. I did take his remote viewing class. I have his book, and I've been doing his target programs. And for all of you out there, make sure to check out more information on Paul. Go to his website, which is rvviewer.com or rviewer.com. And he's also on Facebook at rviewer. 
And you can also find him on Remote Viewer on YouTube, Twitter, and on LinkedIn. So make sure to check out his information. Sign up for his newsletter to keep up to date on his new classes, everything that's coming out. And now, Paul, I've worked with you. And wait, it's been wait, wait, wait. All I wanted to say is, if I had realized how long that was, I'd appointed you at a shorter bio. <laughs> oh, I have a shorter bio, but I didn't oh. want to do that. <laughs> okay, I then, to give you then all the credit. <laughs> hopefully, the audience won't blame me then. <laughs> okay, good. Go ahead. So I've worked with you, and it was I've got to say, doing remote viewing session, the class in person with you, I felt was so important for me to get that personal one-on-one -on -one time with you. And it, it was a smaller class and I thought it was awesome. But I wanna know from you, how did you actually get going where you wanted to start teaching that class, where you wanted to actually go into remote viewing? And then first, I guess we should back up, let people know from your perspective what remote viewing is. Okay, so uh, I'll answer each of those 15 questions in order. <laughs> I got 15 more, so be ready. <laughs> so first off, yeah, yeah, you know, I've been doing remote. I did remote viewing for seven years in the army before I moved on to more normal army kind of jobs, army and joint jobs. Um, then when it came to time of retirement, my wife wanted me to work for a three-letter agency because it had a government pension at the end and it had government health care and and is reliable roughly nine to five work hours and, and you carried a briefcase to work, right? I applied for one at NSA and an uh, intelligence analyst position and ultimately got turned down for which I was great, re greatly relieved. I mean, I, I bought the interview suit, I tuned up my, it, my resume, all the stuff you do to get a job after the military, right? And, uh, and that had failed and I didn't try it again because I did not did not want to do that. It was just seemed to me a very tedious thing. So what do I do instead? Well, uh, about that time, so it's interesting that remote viewing only came to the general public consciousness the very end of 1995. So this was just uh, eight months before I retired. Um, it, no, am I doing this right? Yes, eight months before I retired, it, blows up it gets on nightline ted Koppel's old show um and on the show they had several of my old buddies uh dale graff um and i won't go into who all these guys are right off but uh dale graff uh, ed may uh joe mcmonigle and then some other folks i haven't met but knew about robert gates who both had been both a cia and a uh cia director and uh, uh secretary of defense and um, they proceeded to spill the beans on this program that had been top secret when I was in it in, in between 1983 and 1990. Huge oh. event in the media world. Um, all of the major newspapers carried stories about it. Uh, it was on, people were being interviewed all over the place for the different like NPR and NBC and all of these, all of the networks, small and big and the and I was still on active duty, so I wasn't being interviewed by anybody. They didn't know I existed, which was what was, you know, that was the right circumstance at the time, much as I would have loved to set some of the story straight that was getting garbled out there in the media space. Um, <clears throat> come time to retire, eight months later, I'd applied, I applied for the NSA job and, law, and didn't get it. 
Um, and then I'm starting to think, what do I want to do? Well, there's two things I want to do. Uh, well, first off, sorry, I left the middle of the story out. And so also at this time, this was when the internet started exploding too, right? It, the World Wide Web has just been developed. Um, and along with that, Coast to Coast, which became the biggest syndicated overnight radio show, a, a nighttime radio show in the world for a while when Art Bell was doing it. Uh, it also discovered remote viewing. And so all of those things together made, it didn't make remote viewing a household word, but it made it widely familiar to a lot of people and very exciting for people who wanted to find out more about it, in fact, do it themselves. A few of my friends, former colleagues stepped up and started teaching it. And I thought, you know what? I've been teaching this longer than anybody that's out there right now. I should, uh, I should hang out my shingle. And so the, I, the next thing I tell my wife, she, she drives down the, the street in the car and she looks and there's a catalog for the University of Maryland on the dashboard. She says, what's that? <laughs> Why is that there? And I said, well, I was going to talk to you about this. I want to apply to graduate school. She says, what? <laughs> that's a great that's way to, the, to bring it up. Subject. <laughs> yeah, that's just the opposite, of course, of a government job, right? No guaranteed income, no guaranteed health care, right? All that. We did, of course, have uh, retired military health care stuff, but... Um, and then I said, I want to start a business. I want to start teaching remote viewing. What? <laughs> she's, a, she's a very pragmatic person. And at that time, uh, I don't blame her for, for thinking, none of, neither of those things are realistic. You know, we're going we're gonna to starve to death. <laughs> but if you think through it, so all, a lot of my uh, military friends, when they got out, they had a guaranteed career. I mean, I had Air Force buddies, fighter pilots and stuff. Airline pilot, logical segue. Uh, Army engineers get into some kind of civil engineering job. Uh, uh, even the admin people in the Army can get out and get, uh, you know, administrative jobs in the in the civilian world. Infantry officers, they have a lot of leadership skills and, and experience, and they get snapped up oftentimes by companies. And me, what am I? Well, I'm an intel officer, but I'm a generalist, which means I don't have specific skills, which is why I think NSA turned me down. I had, I had some experience, but not enough for their specialized job that they wanted, you know, that they were hiring for. And so what am I going to do? Well, the only skill I have, and I say marketable, except even them, and I didn't know it was going to be marketable, was yes. teaching remote viewing. And I thought, well, there's a low investment uh, aspect here. I don't have to do any further training. Uh, I already know how to do this. Well, let me give it a try. And so I set up my company and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. There's more opportunity there than I can possibly have the bandwidth to realize myself. So so both, I did go into graduate school. Maybe we'll talk about that later. That turned out to be a very valuable thing. And uh, the, my remote viewing company has been exactly the right thing to do. So you asked that question and you got a long answer. Well, I never even thought about the idea. What do you do when you get out of the military when you have the background and training you have? I never even thought about like, well, what do you do after that? You could have just retired and just, you know, sat in a chair for a while. Well, as I tell people, <laughs> uh, uh, a military retirement and a job at McDonald's and you can squeak by. Yeah. <laughs> 
you can't really survive on just military retirement. It's really nice. I am not complaining. I really appreciate the generosity of the American taxpayers uh, for for providing that. But uh, but it's not enough to actually get by, uh, particularly if you retire at 20. Now, if I would have been a full colonel retired at 30 years, you get 75% of your base pay. Uh, that might have been okay, but I wasn't a full colonel and I didn't have 30 years. So uh, and besides that, we got to experience you because you had to find something. So I think it was great. <laughs> well, you know, the interesting thing is that it did force me to try and, yeah, figure this out, right? And and then I feel like I've been able to make a major contribution. Obviously, it's one that brings me income. But most people, I mean, medical doctors make major contributions, and they get plenty of income for that, you know. So I don't feel bad about making valuable contributions for other people and also realizing an income, which is, let me tell you, much less than a medical doctor. So. Oh, absolutely. And and I've got to say, I have experienced your class. I've been there in person. And you put in some heck of some long days and you have a lot of time invested in every single one of those classes. So if anybody out there is looking at the classes and going, oh, should I or shouldn't I? I highly recommend it. And you are, you're going to be immersed, but be ready to keep up the fall because uh, <laughs> he's got, some, yeah, it's, he's it's got a, a lot of time. <laughs> They're challenging classes. They really are. Um, the sad thing is that I don't have the energy levels I used to. I, I seven. I'll turn seventy-one this year, and uh, and I am surprised at how much of an energy deficit you end up with as you get older. So, and my wife has been lobbying for me to retire, retire, but I don't know. I I just can't go there, you know. But I have cut back significantly on the number of classes that I offer. And, and it's true, there's other things I need to do <laughs> before I check out, right? It's, so, it's a lot of fun stuff to do. <laughs> not just fun, but necessary. I've got probably 25 book ideas in that neighborhood of 25 book ideas, all of which would be useful and valuable. And there's no way I'm going to get them all done. Uh, even if I were to quit teaching today, I would not get them all done. So I just have to pick the ones that I think either have the prospects of getting done the soonest or will have be the most valuable contribution or hopefully both and, uh, and go for those but we'll we'll see yeah. i think it'll be both and i'm looking forward to any future books you have because like like i said i do have remote viewing the essential guide remote viewing you wrote and for other people if you're thinking about getting into it looking at it definitely pick it up it's through amazon i believe you can mm -hmm. get it there so along with some of your other fun ones you have so make sure to check out more of paul's books out there <laughs> you know what because you've been so nice to me i might even send you a complimentary copy of my first one reading the enemy's mind Ooh, that looks really good i was i was looking at that i'm like oh man i gotta okay. check that one out <laughs> And at the time, I've got to say, for me, it was a, a series of synchronicities that led me to Paul. And I feel I've talked to a lot of other people, and that's how they find Paul, too, is a series of synchronicities. So I didn't even know anything about you. And I literally, I signed up for his class, like, just a few weeks before it started. I'm like, hey, Paul, you got room? And then I quickly ordered his book. So I'm like, I better learn what remote doing is. <laughs> I learned a little more in depth. And so I was literally reading it on the way there, <laughs> so, but uh, it was well worth it. And it was, as long as you're willing 
to take the time and really be invested in yourself in this class, it is so worth it. I've learned so much from it and I still have a lot more on learning and I can't wait to see where it goes from there. And well, hold on a second. Let's uh -oh. check your file. Oh, oh no. How much you learn. Oh, no. <laughs> so for those of you, if you do take this class, you will be doing homework afterwards. Records, right? <laughs> Now, I am not going to show you what's in here, but I'm going to just take a look. It's been a while, so. Oh, man. Oh, so I've got oh. to say, I'm, I'm going to make an excuse for myself. Angela, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have brought this up. No, actually, she did pretty well. I'm I'm, I'm pleased with her, her performance here. In fact, she's got a lot of really good scores. Angela was a good a good find. I didn't find her. She found me, but, but she did actually do quite well in the class. So congratulations. Oh. Oh, oh, I was scared there for a while. <laughs> I gotta say, there are so this is really learning a new process. The remote viewing is learning a process to get into that line. And for me, it was a, a bit of a, it's like I have to relearn different things I'd already been doing because I do mediumship, I connect to the other side, but it's like I have to kind of go back in and relearn things. But there's so many tools and new ways of connecting I'm learning. So I'm very excited. and excited for the next one and, and by the way Paul the next one will be a little bit better I'll have the, the format down better for you <laughs> well and, and people should know that uh that just finishing up the in-person part of the class doesn't finish the class you have 10 homework assignments that you have to go through and uh I find a lot of my students don't quite have it nailed down when they leave obviously it's a new skill a new develop the thing you're developing but by the time they're done with those 10 assignments uh, and all the red ink that I spill telling them what they did wrong and all that, by the time we're, they're done with that, then they have it down pretty well. So I'm I'm anticipating you won't have any issues by the time you're finished. So. Oh, that's good because, man, I try. I really do. <laughs> so, Paul, we talk, we've been talking about remote viewing. And one of the things with this is is. I guess I maybe you should explain remote viewing at kind of a core level and what you're doing in the class when you're doing remote viewing. Okay, so the first question is, what is it? And what's the second one? And then what are you doing in the class to kind of tap into that to move yourself into I see. it? So, so kind of describe what happens. Yeah, I yeah, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, so uh, remote viewing, and I always struggle with a good way of describing this. And I think I've got it. And then I think now there's a better way. And yeah. Remote viewing essentially is a, it's actually a skill set you develop that, that takes advantage of an underlying ability everybody has. Uh, you've heard psychics say, uh, no, you have to have a gift or you can't do it. This is something you have to have a gift for, right? <laughs> now, I know there's a lot of psychics who don't say that because they know better. I don't, I don't say that. Yeah. <laughs> I know everybody's um, got it. <laughs> but everybody is psychic using and i don't even like the word psychic because there's so much baggage that goes along with that um but we don't have a suitable alternative word maybe maybe if i maybe my biggest contribution will be to finally discover one that's the best alternative to that but i like we'll that it hadn't happened yet <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah so we all have this underlying ability but the trick of course is to get at it to actually operationalize it make it make it work for you right and remote viewing is kind of a a procedural template or a, or a methodology that gets imposed that can be imposed over this underlying skill to actually leverage it and to make it work for you. Okay. Um, and 
ultimately, so the, the underlying ability is we do have the ability to perceive and experience things that are otherwise inaccessible to our conventional physical senses. In other words, we do have the ability to perceive, observe in a, in a qualitative way, observe, experience events, people, places, things that may be on the other side of the planet or inside of a sealed room or sealed up inside an envelope or a, a safe for that matter, right? <laughs> or even, and this is this might be controversial, but it's actually true, or on other planets. Now, obviously the other planets I have in mind here are the solar system planets where we at least have some understanding of what's there so we can verify whether you've actually psychically perceived what's going on there. Uh, there's a lot of fantasy associated with otherworldly targets. Maybe we'll talk about that later too. I don't know. But um, but at any rate, that, that it's a skill that allows you to do that. You're not perceiving with your physical senses. You're essentially using what we call extrasensory perception. Now, people get confused with that term, extrasensory. They think that means you have a sixth sense or a seventh sense or an eighth sense. Whatever. <laughs> Doesn't mean that at all. Mean extra in the same sense as you mean extracurricular or extraterrestrial or extra whatever. Not that there's an additional, but rather that it's outside or beyond what the base word is. So extraterrestrial means something that's not on earth, right? Uh, extracurricular means it's outside or beyond the normal curriculum, the standard curriculum of a school. So when we say extrasensory, we mean beyond or without the functioning of the senses. The senses are not involved in ESP and extrasensory perception because remote viewing is a means of applying extrasensory perception. It functions as a strictly mental effect by which we can actually access, perceive and describe features of events, persons, places, things, whatever, that we could not possibly manage using our own senses because of being on too far away, locked inside a room, whatever. In other words, it's just a form of ESP. And I like to say a lot of times, you know, when you think about ESP, it's that time where, you know, you feel like, oh, I should call somebody or I feel like I, I should connect with them. And pretty soon either they'll connect to you or you'll call them. And they're like, oh, I was waiting for your call. We are, we're all connected. And, and I, I love the idea of how you do it for one thing, because you're really taking the that word, the connotation of the psychic and all that kind of stuff, which I, I agree that word is kind of gives people a little the heebie-jeebies, I guess, sometimes. <laughs> and, and to take it and put it more into the scientific and put it down into a formula and be able to work your way through it and to make people understand there, there's, a, there's a way to get into this, a way to actually use it. And that's something that's, I think for you, has you have really done such a great job because there's people out there like, oh, I can never do that. How can I do it? Like you said, we're all able to do it. And for you to say, yeah, you can. Here's the formula. Here's how we can work through it. And how did you come up with that formula? Because you have, and we should maybe back up a little bit with you working with Ingo Swan, Hal Putoff, do, working with them. How did that start? And, and then you actually started to create the program. Well, yeah, I, I, and I, I especially wanted to give credit to where this started. I mean, I'm not the giant. I'm standing on the shoulders of giants here. And uh, 
the program originally, the whole concept started with Ingo Swan back in 1971. Ingo was a, interestingly, maybe you don't know this connection. Ingo was born in Telluride, Colorado before Telluride was a thing, you know. Really? Back when it was still a mining camp. They didn't have film festivals there. It wasn't a boutique place to go for skiing, that kind of thing. <laughs> no song. His mom was a, ran a boarding house and he grew up, you know, helping empty the, the pan, the pots and stuff you know whatever i don't know uh, but then he and his family moved actually to tuila utah so he spent his most formative years in utah which is where i live now wow interesting irony altogether. interesting irony but well, you're not living in the same house he did no you're not doing that are you no and I, in fact i'm about 300 miles or so maybe a little more from where where he lived but Ingo, you know, he, he did a tour uh, in the military in Korea uh, right after the Korean War, I think, when he started. Um, and then he decided he wanted to be an artist and moved to New York City. And uh, his day job was working as an admin person for the United Nations. And then the rest of the time, he was hanging out with people like Andy Warhol right, <laughs> and painting in his basement and, uh, and stuff like that. And, and uh, he, he'd had some out-of-body experiences as a kid. Uh, I mean, a, a real a kid in Colorado, his maternal, um, yes, I'm pretty sure it was his maternal grandmother, um, had her, herself had, and I don't know if she called it psychic, but she had this these proclivities and and they skipped the generation because Ingo's mom didn't really have any patience with this stuff. But Ingo had a few <laughs> out-of-body experiences as a kid and uh, his grandmother kind of mentored him a bit. Well, he gets to New York and, and he meets all these different uh, a variety of avant-garde people both in the arts and, and other areas and some of them quite wealthy in fact um, and one of the popular things then was to dabble in scientific parapsychology we're not talking about you know going to storefront psychics or gazing into crystal balls we're talking about people doing actual research credible people in fact uh, the american society of psychical research and uh, Carlos Osas, who was a, a, a legitimate scientist. And the City city College of New York, actually, with prof psychology professor there, Gertrude Schmeidler, was also engaged in this kind of research. And Ingo fell into that circle. And because of his background, he became one of their favorite subjects. <laughs> they <laughs> wired him up. They had him do all kinds of different experiments and stuff. At a certain point, he said, you know, you guys are trying to get me to do out of body. And I do seem to have some success with it. But you're doing the experiment all wrong. <laughs> what do you mean? He said, this is how you do it. And essentially he sketched out the an early form of remote viewing or a proto-remote viewing protocol, right? And um, that's where it started. And they decided they needed a name for it because it was definitely a distinct experimental protocol from anything they'd been doing. And so he said, well, I, I get most of what I get from vision. For some people, it isn't like that, but still... Uh, he he was very visually oriented because he majored in, had a dual major at Westminster College in Salt Lake City in biology and uh, and studio art. So so he was very visually oriented. He said, well, I get most of my stuff from vision. So I'm, you know, it's like viewing. So I'm, 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 we're going to call it remote viewing. That's where the term came from. Ah. Another, <laughs> thing, another thing we can talk about later is maybe why I think it ought to have been remote perception, but I won't. I won't do that side. I like, yeah. I like that. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so he's develops this, this experiment, his experiment. And, uh, 
uh, actually a couple of different versions of it that both of which worked really surprisingly well under double blind conditions with certifiable feedback when it was over. Um, in the meantime, there was this young physicist. He started off as a naval officer. He got, he got his master's in, I think he got his master's in physics. Uh, at, um, it was physics, but I can't remember which kind. It, anyway, uh, his name was Hal Putoff, Harold E. Putoff. <laughs> and, and Hal uh, worked for the Navy. He was a naval intelligence officer at the time after he got through grad school. And then he, uh, his naval tour, uh, time ended and he, he did get a job with NSA. <laughs> so he's working for National Security and they want him to get an advanced degree in physics. So they sent him out to Stanford University to work on a PhD in physics. And part of the program, he said, you know, I don't want everyone to go back to Maryland and live there again. I love California <laughs> too much. Um, so he actually resigned from NSA, which meant he had to fund his own PhD program. Oh, that's uh, expensive. <laughs> well, it was, but you know, I discovered that if you have to pay for your own PhD program, you've done something wrong. Uh, oh. How much money they throw at you uh, from various sources, depending on your PhD, to help you because they want to have people with these advanced degrees. Um, at any rate, however he paid for it, he did. And then he gets hired by uh, by SRI International, which is the Stanford Research Institute, but it by then been spun off from Stanford was a standalone think tank that supported government research. Uh, reason for that was that they did nuclear weapons research and military based research and the student body at Stanford had become, you know, highly hippie oriented. <laughs> <laughs> And they demanded that that uh, Stanford divest itself of this of SRI. So SRI goes its own separate way. Hal's working for them in laser physics because he became a a pioneering laser physicist. Literally, he was really one of the uh, pioneers in that field. And um, so, was he actually working on the laser part of it? Well, he was working in lasers. Yeah, in lasers. Oh, yeah. I did not know that. I learned something new. Yeah. <laughs> Well, he and Russell, well, we can talk about Russell later, but Russell was also a laser physicist, although at the master's level. Um, but he had this idea of experimenting with tachyons because, you know, he had a physics degree that was very, involved very fundamental physics. And so he's interested in seeing if he could verify these still hypothetical particles called tachyons. And and it involved, uh, well, that gets way too complicated. So I'm just going to cut to the chase here. <laughs> um, it happened that uh, he'd sent a proposal to a guy named Cleve Baxter in uh, New York. And Cleve was, a, he was essentially a polygrapher. His, he was a, a pioneer in the, in the uh, lie detector field, right? And yeah. even into his 80s, he was still contracted by the, both the CIA and the FBI as a consultant on, on the use of wow. in, in lie detectors. Um, but Putoff had sent a letter to him because of some of the research he was doing, uh, asking some questions. And Cleve, it, it's I've heard two stories. Hal thinks Cleve showed the letter to Ingo, who he was working with too, who Cleve was working with Ingo. And Ingo says that he was in Cleve's office or someplace, and the letter fell on the floor. <laughs> he picks it up and looks at it and reads it and says. He he calls he uh, writes to Hal and says, "Well, why do you want to do it this way with Cleve 
when you could have an actual psychic like me who could report on what the experience is. Hal <laughs> said, well, that's kind of interesting. Yeah, no, nobody's going to understand that because I didn't explain the whole background, but but th that's enough. You have enough, right? And so Hal thinks about it and says, well, it's certainly worth a try. <laughs> but, uh, he wasn't particularly, uh, you know, wedded to any kind of ESP connection here, but but he thought, well, who would experiment? It didn't cost anything uh, except maybe plane fare. And so he brings Ingo out and all of his Hal's friends said, well, if you're getting the psychic, you have to be very careful of not fooling you. So here's the safeguards you should take. And he did. You know, he made sure he had an absolutely airtight experiment that there's no way Ingo Swan could possibly know the circumstances. Now they were going to test PK or psychokinesis. This is what people call by the old term, uh, let's see, uh, telekinesis. It's the wrong yeah. word. It's not telekinesis, it's psychokinesis. Again, something we can talk about later if you want. It's a bit of a soapbox for me if people screw that word up. But psychokinesis, PK, mind over matter. That was what the base experiment was. And uh, so they go on an experiment. It's a very complicated scientific device in the basement of the physics building at Stanford. And despite being totally blind to what the device even was, Ingo succeeded in not only affecting it mentally, but also he was able to describe the internal components of this thing accurately. And the, the design of this had never been published. There was absolutely no way Ingo could have known what it looked like inside. And yet he was able to describe it. And so uh, Hal wrote up a little informal paper on it, circulated in his circle of friends, and the CIA got a copy. No. <laughs> now, they were interested in this kind of stuff, not because they believed it was real. They were interested in it because the Russians seemed, the Soviets, I'll call them Soviets, the Soviets seemed to believe it was real. Now, we get hammered because we spent somewhere between 20 and $25 million of taxpayers' money over 23 years on this project, roughly about a million a year, right? We get That's hammered. Oh, much. look at that waste of taxpayer money. <laughs> it's not the much. The Soviets were spending hundreds of millions of dollars on this kind of research. Oh. More than 10 times what we ever spent in this. And the, the CIA was puzzled because they didn't believe it mattered. It made a difference. And, you know, that this, this thing was, ESP was not useful. And here the Soviets are spending all this money. And Soviets are very pragmatic people. They, they might have been wrong on a lot of things, but they didn't tend to throw money into something they didn't really have high confidence that they get something out of. And so the CIA really needed to know why they were doing that. Um, I think the return on investment was very important to them. If it, worked, <laughs> if it worked and we didn't realize it worked, we would be at a massive disadvantage. Absolutely. And so the CIA wanted to, wanted to verify it didn't work so they'd be reassured. <laughs> so they saw this paper. Uh, Hal was working for a classified laboratory that supported government uh, projects, military and government projects. Um, he already had a, a clearance, so they decided they would do a contract with him. And Ingo was was not Ingo was a, a, a source for it, you know, and, and whatever. They, they set up the program, and that's where the whole Stargate thing started. And that was in well, it's the the first feelers from the CIA were in 1972. The program actually started getting funded in '73, and there was a long history after that that maybe we'll touch, but. That was another very long answer to a short question. So sorry about that. Well, it's it's kind of funny because 
like a week ago, I actually saw a program where they were working with Ingo Swan and they were working with a submarine where they went down and took a submarine and, and to see what was on the finding a shipwreck with the with all of your program. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like yeah. and it's like, oh, well, this is quite interesting. It comes up just before the, before I'm coming to interview. <laughs> ah, perfect preparation. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So when you started doing this, you were working with Ingo, you, and you've been doing this for a while. So you we, you talked about how Ingo got in, involved in this. But how did you get pulled into this whole thing? Because I you weren't really, let's say, I know you you were you connected to so many things, but how did you pull into that picture? Well, first off, uh, you say that I just realized this September will be the 40th anniversary of my recruitment in the program. Wow. Congratulations. Uh, How cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll have to have a big party in September. <laughs> <laughs> that would be fun. <laughs> yeah. So um, I had never put the words remote and viewing together. I had no idea this existed, as did almost everybody in, in the world. No, Almost nobody knew that this existed. Um, as a kid growing up, I'd actually kind of, I, I, I liked science fiction fantasy and I, I enjoyed science fiction that involved characters with ESP, Andre Norton, who's had telepathic cats in some of her stories. No. And, uh, Zena Henderson, who, uh, had her books about her stories about the people who are these aliens that look just like us, but they had, uh, psychic skills, right? I, I enjoyed those. And I had this hope that, uh, that maybe ESP was real, right? And then in junior high, I had the opportunity to test that. One of my fellow students uh, created a science fair project uh, testing ESP using the Zener cards, you know, these uh, ESP cards. They're, you know, they got the wavy lines. If you ever watched the first opening scenes of the first Ghostbuster movie, you'll have seen examples of these, right? Circle. Well, they have and, it in Ghostbusters? Oh. <laughs> yeah, 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 the very first. Uh, <laughs> Well, yeah, I won't detail that scene. It's really, really hilarious. But they use the Zener cards, the the, the uh, ESP cards, um, and uh, so it was a total failure. The science fair project was a total failure. Nobody showed any evidence of ESP at all, including me. I was a total bust. And so, out of that, uh, I I determined that well maybe there's nothing to ESP after all it was it's a fun device in science fiction novel but it's yeah there's nothing to it right <laughs> and uh, and later on of course I heard stories about Yuri Geller who's bending spoons and all the exposés about him which some of them turned out not to be real exposés others were I mean um, and for those I, of you I've got to say for those of you who are watching YouTube if you want look behind Paul's head you'll see some Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I. Well, we can talk about that later too, because the inspiration for those is over my head there. I I tried to position myself so he wasn't right there, but that's where he is. Yeah, Ingo Swan right there. Yeah, Yeah, that's a photo Ingo gave me actually. Oh no, it's more than ten years ago. Maybe almost fifteen now. Uh, Yeah, it's great. It's a great picture of him signed and everything, but. yeah, but he was the person who actually inspired me to do the kind of paintings that you can see back there. Another story, maybe for later. Um, so I decided ESP wasn't real, which I want to temporarily contrast with a science fair experiment my son Will did when he was 11. 
in fourth grade, or however old he was in fourth grade. And it involved remote viewing and it worked and it freaked his teacher out. <laughs> they did it at school? Oh yeah. <laughs> oh my, oh that would be. He was expected it would be a failure, which, you know, in science, a, a field experiment is useful. It tells you things, right? Useful right. things. So they don't mind if a science fair project fails. It's always better for the kid's ego if it doesn't, but. You know, <laughs> How many how many science fair uh, experiments freezing super balls and then having them shatter? How many of those fail? They're all pretty successful, right? So right. this one, she figured, oh, well, this one isn't going to work. And then it did. And she, I, she didn't know what to do about that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, but yeah, there's an interesting contrast. But at the time, I didn't have that that second point, you know, the second data point. But what a difference when you talked about the evolution of consciousness, when people were ready to hear things, for them to even allow that in school to even have that there what a difference in what they're and what and people perceptions of it yeah i don't remember how it got vetted or if it even did get vetted i and it may have been kind of a laissez-faire thing where they essentially allow the kid to try anything you know and, right and see what happens uh, to me that would be the right thing to do and they shouldn't have a any kind of a benchmark that you have to pass in order to Get your science fair project in the base level in a regular grade school science fair project now Absolutely. later on for maybe the county level and the state level that's a different story but right for <laughs> just the entry level they shouldn't have any kind of restriction um so anyway so i'm going through life thinking there's nothing to this and then i get to fort meade finally after a tour in europe and becoming becoming an officer tour in europe Captain's course at Fort Huachuca, and then here I am at Fort Meade as a as a Mid East uh, a Mid East desk analyst working Mid East problems mainly Iran, uh, and uh, unbeknownst to me, I moved in next door to the operations and training officer uh, for the Stargate program. It was uh, <laughs> Skip Atwater. And Funny the, how that works. <laughs> it's really interesting. It's very much interesting. Across the street, uh, one of their remote years in training, Tom McNair. And I couldn't get him to tell me what they did. It was just really bizarre because uh, it, they wouldn't even tell me what, what intelligence discipline they worked in, which it, for me, it's common knowledge or intelligence. And, and you can always say whether you're a human or a siginter or, an, or a photinter, you know, whatever. You, always, you can always say that without giving anything at all away. Right. Tell me that. And that was <laughs> So anyway, whatever. Um, what I didn't know is that they had a new contract with SRI to train some more viewers. They um, were looking around, they were assessing, this is not something you go up to uh, Army Assignments Branch and say, we need a captain to be a psychic spy. <laughs> it just didn't work, right? So they were evaluating their largest pool of, of uh, intelligence officer acquaintances and looking who might be a good choice. And then I move in right next to them and they see that I'm into art. Well, they were looking for, they were looking for uh, army officers, uh, intelligence officers that were competent in the intelligence world that had their intelligence skills well honed, that kind of thing. But then added the, uh, interest in some kind of what we might call right brain pursuit, like music, like fine art, like uh, creative writing, like, uh, well, languages. And that's not quite so uncommon in the intelligence world foreign languages and that. Well, they got to know me and, and discovered I majored in art at BYU uh, and had illustrated some books and stuff that I had been playing guitar for then about 20 years, I'd say, that I uh, 
that I was fluent in German and, and was confident in, at the time, confident in Hebrew and Arabic. <laughs> and uh, and that I like to write short stories and send them off to get rejected. They always got to have something fun to do. <laughs> yeah, they're thinking, we can't not try this guy out. <laughs> Let's see if it might work. So one day they knock on my door and they say, we think we might be good at what you what you you might be good at what we do. I said, what do you do? And they say, we can't tell you. I said, I don't know then, you know. And then um, uh, they gave me some psychology and personality profile tests like the Myers-Briggs, MMPI, kind of standard stuff with a few other more specialized uh, assessment instruments uh, thrown in. They said, if you if you score where you think you will with these tests, then we'll read you on and you'll give we'll offer you the chance to volunteer. Okay. So they, a week or two later, they said, okay, well, you scored really well. I said, okay, well, what does that mean? They said, come on, come on over to the offices on the, well, first off, they had to clear up my command. No, they didn't. Okay, so how it worked is I had to go over to their offices, which was really about a five-minute walk from my quarters. And the ramshackle old buildings, they were built as temporary buildings in World War II, and they were falling down. The paint was flaking off, the, the walls were splintered, and uh, the raccoons were living under the crawl space underneath those squirrels in the attic. It's a great place to start. Yeah. Anyway, so I go in and Tom is in the back and he, Tom, you have to envision him. He's an army captain. It says captain on his door, you know, Captain Tom McNear. He's wearing an open collar shirt, um, jeans, and has a full beard. You know, not unlike any other army officer I'd ever seen. I knew there were people in the, in, who are really spies, the ones who case officers and stuff who who were who would dress like that, but never somebody living on an army installation like that. He sits me down and he says, um, okay, so you need to fill out this. And it was this what you what we call in the civilian world a non-disclosure form. And it was really draconian. It was stiffer than even for the top secret special department intelligence read-ons I'd had. This wow. was really strange. And so, okay, <laughs> and I fill it out, sign it, hand it back to him. So, okay, our mission here is to collect intelligence against foreign threats using a parapsychology discipline known as remote viewing. We're inviting you to volunteer to become a psychic spy. And then he said, uh, now you don't have to answer right now. Here are the three things you can tell your wife about this. And you can tell us in 24 hours whether you are willing to volunteer or not. If you don't volunteer, you're you're restricted by this paper you just signed, but otherwise uh, we won't bother you again. And as he's saying this, I'm going, I used to believe in ESP. I decided it wasn't true. He's telling me there's a line item in the federal budget to pay people to become psychic spies. There is no way in hell I'm not, so I'm not signing up for this. I don't care what my wife says. <laughs> <laughs> and so and so all right then i said uh no no that's not necessary um i can ask you right now yes i want to do it he was kind of surprised i don't think anybody else had ever done that you know that really they, they requested they'd all said okay i'm going to think about it you know and i frankly didn't even care if it ruined my career at that point that was this was something i absolutely absolutely felt like i well wanted to and felt like i should do so uh that's how what i got when you have something that intriguing, I, I don't know how you can say no. <laughs> I would imagine people did. I don't know. They did. People wow. Did. I, I couldn't imagine saying no to that. What an opportunity. And because of that, 
you're here with all the other people teaching it to so many people. And, you know, that's the other thing is when you first started. So they, they talk about remote viewing and we've touched on it briefly. Like, you know, you're seeing things in different areas. And when you first started, did you visualize like, hey, I might be doing this later on? Or was it like, I'm just going in and just figuring out what I'm going to do? Well, the fact is, you have no idea what the future is going to look like from that perspective, right? And uh, my only worry at that point was if I got fired before I even got started because I couldn't do it, <laughs> right? Um, and I think everybody had that has that worry that had that worry that signed on and probably still today. I mean, I'm, I'm I don't know. Let me ask you a question. Oh God! Okay, go ahead. <laughs> how how? What were your feelings when you sat down that first day of class and, and I started the lectures? What, how, what were your thoughts about how it was going to turn out for you? My first, my thought was, first, I hoped I was listening good enough. So I, I was taking in as much information as I probably, as I possibly could. I was like, please let me be like sponge today. Mm -hmm. But then it was also, the, I think the same worry is like, man, I don't want to screw this up. I don't want to make fun of the you know pick my butt out and say man you suck <laughs> it, it really is that like you know I tap into a lot of different things but this was a whole new a whole new way of doing things so yeah there was that nervousness of of like can I do this can I really do what he's asking me to and can I do it the way he's looking for you know so absolutely I I agree with you I would the same way yeah I think my feelings were I think you can understand how I was feeling now the stakes for me were a little bit higher because I left my previous assignment to come to this. <laughs> and that was not, I won't say it wasn't available. The colonel that I had to get permission to leave from was sympathetic to the program. And he might've given me a job again back over there. Otherwise I might've had to, I, I might've had to uproot my family and move somewhere else in the world to find a replacement job if I didn't make it there. You know, if I didn't make the remote viewing program. But you know what, uh, it was, I also didn't know that I wouldn't succeed, right? There, I, I, it was totally like almost anything you undertake in life that's of any challenge at all. You won't know whether you succeed or not until you give it a try. And so I was, I was looking forward, uh, and I, I don't mean looking forward to. I mean looking forward, uh, seeing a willing and open-minded about what the future is going to present here, and I did succeed. I mean. Uh, in the first just experimental attempts and then in the training I, I did have some good success so the worry was unnecessary but it's natural that that's there and i think that's something you know for you saying that for yourself going into this at the very first beginning and now when you're teaching it and for me it was that worry of like man can i really do this the way that you're looking for and and realizing and I want to say with you, when you went through and the other people that were in my class, you really took the time with us and you really helped us to get on that line to understand the information behind everything you were teaching. You were so thorough on all of that. And, you know, for anybody else, there is so very thorough. You don't have to worry about if you're going to get it or not. You'll get what you need to get out of this class because you're going to you you will be doing the exercises and you will be doing them with exactly what you need as you go through it. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the fact is, I I've only had a few students who didn't 
succeed to some extent. In fact, I think if I only had one student, no, I had two students that didn't succeed at all. And one is because he didn't come intellectually equipped for the class. Um, and that's hard to assess in the beginning, but uh, he was actually, I think he was functionally illiterate. He didn't seem to be able to read or write worth, worth anything, you know, and, and I felt bad for him, but fortunately he was the only guy in the class. And that often happens universal. If I ever end up with a one person class, this isn't universal, but because I've had <laughs> one person classes that were great, you know? Right. <laughs> If 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 all all kinds of, you know how you have all kinds of things fall together and then a miracle happens, right? Well, if all kinds of things fall apart and you end up with one person. I always wonder if there's a reason for that. You know that that the universe doesn't want me uh, to disadvantage a bunch of other more prepared people uh, with having to kind of shepherd. A, a person who's less prepared for the class. And uh, and in this case, that was what happened. The, the guy, without me realizing it, there's no way to know it because he came across fine with emails. Right. I wonder if he's having somebody write them for him or something, but he comes and he just was not equipped for it. But he was determined to get through the class. And in the end, I don't remember, I think he did actually have some success on one or two sessions, but it was it was a real struggle, very a very difficult struggle. So, uh, so that does happen occasionally. But by and large, most of my students have had at least some measure of success. And even the ones who didn't have as much as others, I, there's a lot of value in this class that has strictly to do with remote viewing, and yet goes beyond remote viewing. And I think you probably experienced that as well. You learn things about yourself that you never knew. Uh, you learn things about human nature and human perception that you never knew. And uh, and those things are all valuable outside of the remote viewing framework as well as in. Absolutely. And that's one of the things, you know, it really learns. I felt it really helped you, a lot of the people. And there was other people in the class and we talked afterwards. And it was really a lot of learning to trust yourself and learning to trust when you're getting on that line. And then I've got to say, Paul, what you're, you're pushing all of the extra vocabulary words <laughs> like you never do you do so many words and the words you start using to help describe the uh the remote viewing the your target you're working on and descriptions how to descriptors on how to do that so all of that together it really does push you and i i've got to say for this i feel anybody that signs up for this you really should be invested in yourself invest in the class invest your time and be there like totally 100 percent in the class and be paying attention to everything that's going on because it is so worth it you'll get out so much by by really being conscious of what you're there for I like to joke with my students. I say, when you came here, you thought you were just going to learn about remote viewing, but you're also learning a bit about psychology, perception, neuroscience, English vocabulary. Um, oh, I forget what all the other categories are. I remember when I'm in the middle of the class, but but literally, this is a kind of a broad-based education in a lot of different fields that you never think would go together. But they all relate; they're all relevant to the remote viewing process. So, oh, it's almost like a college. Even. What is it? Marksmanship, even. Marksmanship. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave that a secret until you take the class. <laughs> oh, I can't wait for that one. <laughs> well, you you 
you you just won't remember. I'll remind you off camera. Okay. <laughs> but it is it is so interesting, and it, it's like a college course just crammed into a, a short time, and you are you are cramming all week. So be prepared for it. Yeah, it's a lot of work, so and, and if you aren't willing to work, um, I don't want you here. You know. Yeah, and uh, and it's. You're, you're putting in so much of your own time and effort. People that are going to be there should really be wanting to be there. So very much. Mm-hmm. So as you started going down this path and you started doing the remote viewing yourself and working in the class, at what point you finally discovered you were probably going to be staying? Because you were probably doing pretty good, I would think. <laughs> in in the army you mean yeah (laughs) yeah um you know i don't think that it kept me if i wasn't providing useful you know successful stuff um and i just stayed as long as they let me i mean i was already (laughs) there for seven years which is uh more than twice as long as you as an army officer you're normally in any assignment the typical average i don't know what the average is but the typical long tour is three years and then they move you on they don't want you being stuck in one place doing the same thing over and over again they want to you know make give you a bright broad experience and and uh even some of those are shorter like you get short tours long tours and stuff so i was there for at least three and a half tours worth of time uh which is really unusual um yeah some of these specialty officer positions are like that but uh, not very many i'll tell you um and so um now i forgot where i was going with that i was there for a long time Um, so where did you want to go i mean you were working uh, through that the whole time and you were really investing yourself in there and then they started bringing you in so you started actually writing the program or helping to refine the program in there well no we needed to document what we had been trained when i say we that was tom mcnair uh you mentioned i think you mentioned some of these guys if i remember right or maybe you didn't but tom mcnair (laughs) he was kind of one class ahead of us Um, and not only one class ahead of us he was sort of the proof principle for training military officers in crv control remote viewing uh, did really well Eagle considering the best student he ever had um, and thanks thank goodness for that because Tom was instrumental in helping us uh, get our feet really on the ground with with uh, the later stages of remote viewing so anyway Tom and then there was me and Bill Ray uh, who's still a great friend and protege uh, Charlene Schufelt who's not, not active in the program anymore or isn't active in remote viewing um, and then as a kind of an afterthought was that Dave, some folks know who he is. Uh, he belonged to a different unit. And that unit decided they wanted to get somebody trained as a remote viewer. And so they asked us to, uh, accomp- to let him accompany us in the training phase. And they provided additional training funds to cover his, his training. And then afterwards, he went back to his other unit uh, for a long time. Then, then some years later, he finally came back and came to uh, Stargate was the time. So that that was us. Oh, I remember we're talking about how do we how do we document what were we documenting? So yeah. we were the ones who trained with Ingo Swan, and because our commander knew that the contract with SRI was going to go away, uh, in fact it had gone away by the time we started this work, 
he wanted us to compile as accurate as possible document about what Ingus wanted taught us. And so I, they called me the wordsmith because I was actually quite competent. That had to do with my English writing skills, I think, quite competent in writing. And, That's uh, where it comes from. <laughs> yeah, well, I tell you what, it's surprising how useful the things you learn in, in your early life come in to play later on and when you get older, right? Oh, absolutely. But, yeah, so, uh, so they made me the, I guess you'd call me the executive editor, I don't know. I was in charge of the project. And so I uh, solicited, collected everybody's notes from the lectures and stuff and, and requested their, you know, their support in putting this all together. They, of course, reviewed all the uh, manuscript stuff and, uh, and added their suggestions and, and changes and such. And so it was a joint effort with me as the main facilitator. And we produced uh, what was then called Coordinate Remote Viewing Manual, uh, which was printed by the Defense Intelligence Agency Press, but not officially released as a document. So anything that's officially released has a document number on it, a DIA document number. This one did not uh, for various reasons. And uh, they printed 30 copies. I have two of those original copies, one of which is heavily wow. marked up. Where <laughs> I discovered things we got wrong, you know, later on. I said, oh, dang it. That we left, for example, uh, there's a series of different breaks you take in the process. We left out the miss break. And I thought that was ironic that we missed the miss break. You missed the miss break. <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, and that, uh, of course, got released on the internet in 1997. <laughs> Uh, I was opposed to the idea, but I saw it was inevitable it was going to come out. And so the person who released it, Palin Gaynor, uh, PJ Gaynor, um, uh, she asked me to write a little intro to it. So I did. And I knew it was going to come out anyway. I might as well at least give, frame it in a way that people understand better what, what it was. And so, yeah. So what were some of the, like, and I don't know how much you can say, but some of the bigger things you worked on with remote viewing. So what were like, and I don't know what you can say, what you can't say, or even some of the things you've worked on now as remote viewer after you've left, what are some of the, the targets or things, I guess, for people to understand what kind of targets, what kind of other things, physical targets you may be working on also, or the so military. I actually can talk about nearly everything. Okay. Yeah mostly been declassified. Now there's still some targets that are probably still sensitive for various reasons. Uh, for example, during the 89-90 and later time frame, we worked a lot of counter-narcotics targets. That was a war on drugs. That was the only, only game in town at the time because the, the uh, Soviet Union had dissipated and, and was all in disarray. And so we didn't have a foreign threat at the time of any serious note other than narco-traffickers, which um, it's a low-grade terminal infection, if you think about it. You know, this whole, whole uh, drug business. No, that's true. That's Most true. Infection. And so it was worthy of a war, but we didn't succeed in fighting it right, which is not a surprise. We always have trouble fighting wars. But, um, but we had a bunch of taskings on that. And some of those, I there are details I won't tell you today because it might implicate... Uh, there may still be bad actors out there who have bad taste for mouth for things that we were able to accomplish. Yeah, understandable. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so generally speaking, I mean, we did anything that was a potentially important target 
to the intelligence community in general, we work. So we work Chinese nuclear tests, Soviet uh, weapons R&D, uh, decision-making in the Politburo, uh, you know, silkworm missiles in Iran, location of silkworm missiles in Iran. Uh, they did a long series during the, uh, the uh, Tehran hostage crisis, the Iranian mm -hmm. hostage crisis on trying to narrow down where hostages, U.S. hostages were being, foreign hostages in general, were being held, uh, what their situation was, what the circumstances, trying to get details. Um, Counterintelligence stuff, we worked one, probably more than one, but one I was particularly involved in, trying to find a mole, the KGB mole in the CIA. Uh, and uh, we actually described the guy, it turned out to be Aldrich Ames, uh, if you want to look him up, he was really bad actor, mm -hmm. <laughs> really bad. I'll have to check that one out for sure. <laughs> yeah, but uh, we actually successfully described him, but they didn't act on our information. They would have found him probably a year, year and a half earlier and before some of his really egregious stuff, uh, if they had actually gone back and reverse engineered what we produced as information. Uh, and, and some of it was actually actionable, but, but whatever. Um, and that's something I think a lot of people don't realize with remote viewing is you're, I can actually view people versus just places is, is doing remote viewing on people. And you also, we had touched on when I was there too, and another about tracking people live as they're moving is another thing you do with remote viewing. And that's something I think people don't realize that remote viewing is getting into all of that. Yeah, I, I don't know about the tracking thing. I mean, it, it's there are some potential there, uh, but but there are some things in remote viewing that are more easily done and more successfully done than others, which stands to reason that's the way it is with everything in life, right? Right. Uh, some things are harder for remote viewing to do and some things are easier. So tracking people is one I put up there as kind of a harder thing to do because it, it involves both identifying, describing people, but also a temporal element, time element and you know, moving from one place to another over time. And so um, there are anecdotal stories about how successes that the that we've had in doing that. Um, but I there's no really good uh, statistical evidence about how well that works. Uh, we don't know how many times you tried it, it didn't work, right? So, but it is a doable thing. It can be done. I'm not going to reject that possibility, but it, it can be done. It's just, how often you can do it successfully, I don't know. Right, right. And then, and so one of the things like we had talked about, just drop that, um, you were, we had talked about your dissertation and how you had talked about the physicalism is that you have, and I just read the little blurb, physicalism is a belief that everything in the universe is either physical or the result of things that are physical, both philosophically and um, science, including psychology, largely assume physicalism is true, but you did a dissertation on the falsehood of physicalism. So can you kind of go into just quickly kind of, I don't know if you can do it quickly. We'll see. <laughs> I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know you're a busy I'll give guy. It a stab. Yeah. <laughs> um, in fact, I don't even know how long we've been on. A while, I guess. Oh, right? it's it's been an, almost an hour and a half. So, so I'm okay. Like, well, maybe maybe I'll wrap up with this, and then we'll have a revisit. And, and all the all the questions I didn't answer that were the topics I didn't answer, we can answer those next time, maybe. <laughs> so, uh, 
so yeah the, the ruling doctrine is physicalism everything in the world is physical or a consequence of physical facts you know and and everybody i think pretty much understands that you know they may not agree with it but they understand it okay and our our scientific world is so arranged that uh if you can't come up with a causal explanation if you came up with a physical explanation or at least a speculatively physical or causal explanation then it can't be real now now that isn't what basically the logic says the logic says that we don't know if it's real or not right but but physicalists make that final leap and say it can't be real okay if it's not physical it doesn't exist um and the problem with that is it's based on a generalized a generalization which is uh, everything that we have thoroughly been able to investigate and find a causal solution to has been physical. Therefore, anything that we haven't been able to find a causal solution to or thoroughly investigate, we have to doubt that it is physical and it probably isn't, right? Uh, it's essentially, it's not just a generalization, like, you know, everything is this, right? It's also based on a um, induction, which is, this has been true, this has been true, this has been true. Therefore, all of these kinds of things are going to be true. Well, we know that's actually a logical fallacy and induction is not is not uh, actually logical, okay? Right. Uh, because you can find a counter, if you can come find a counter example, you disprove that. And physicalism is such that uh, we make this generalization that everything is physical, but if we ever find something that isn't physical, it disproves that. <laughs> <laughs> the physicals to say you can't find anything is physical it's like that old joke uh, there's two rules in this company uh the first rule is the boss is always right R rule two is if the boss is ever wrong see rule number one right sounds like kind of a military thing in here yeah, going. <laughs> it was, it, well, you know what the military is actually better about this kind of a thinking they realize because lives can depend on on false assumptions right, right? And the military will get into these false assumptions, circular logic kind of things, and uh, and then they'll get their counterexample and they'll change. Right? The scientific world doesn't doesn't do that quite as easily. Um, so uh, the problem, of course, is then it becomes if you ever do show up with something that really looks like it's non-physical, the physicals will say then that it isn't real. Right? It's the boss is always right. You show me a place where the boss is wrong. Yeah, the boss is always right. Right, and and so um, my dissertation essentially went quite exhaustively through four parapsychology, psychological, scientific, experimental paradigms that all of which have been replicated, all of which have been demonstrated in a variety of laboratories under a variety of conditions, all of which have had success. Not always, but no scientific experiment always has success. Well, there might be a few, but really, there are plenty of science of accepted science experiments that have a certain level of failures. So, um, so there is a large body of very robust uh, scientifically developed evidence for parapsychology. And parapsychology violates some of the premises of physicalism. Essentially, it's more logical and more probable that it's a, a that parapsychology shows a non-physical uh, element in the universe than it will ever be subsumed under physicalism. And therefore, that's true. There's a high probability that physicalism is false, despite the fact that mainstream science is afraid to reach that conclusion. And, uh, and it is a fear. I, I was just thinking, 
And when I was swimming laps this morning, I was thinking about skeptics and how uh, they point their fingers at parapsychology and say, oh, you guys have got this a priori assumption that there's something there. And that's not true of all. There is a few parapsychologists who are like that, but the majority of them are open-minded about it. But there is an absolute dogmatism in physicalism that has been inculcated, that has been essentially, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word I want here, um, intentionally you know, drilled into every physicalist, that there is nothing except physicalism. It, it, they're dogmatic about it. And uh, it, it, you know, if you ever threaten that, of course, it's standard with anybody, it doesn't have to be in science or anything else. If you have a certain worldview and something comes along and threatens that worldview, you get real crazy about it. It becomes threatening to your, your almost threatening your sense of identity in a way, because our our notions, our worldviews, our notions about the universe uh, tend to kind of get incorporated into our senses, our sense of personal identity. And when you start threatening that, it's like it's like a Catholic or a Protestant or even a Mormon like I am. Um, you come up with something that seems to show that they're, one of your truth claims is false. Then you get into the pushback mode. You know, people point to religion, call it dogmatism. They won't talk, point to science and call physicalism dogmatism, right? And yet um, it, it has all the characteristics. I like that because, you know, one of the things for me, my beliefs and what I believed in is constantly changing. And like when you talk about the physicalism, a lot of people will say, well, you can't physically see that or physically experience it. But it's like but there are ways that it all works. And and really well, viewing is yeah, a good and example. Course, and, and of course, that's that's a, an argument that is dates back to Descartes. <laughs> <laughs> idea of dualism you know that there's mind and then there's body you know that there are two different domains um the pushback was that well how could a non-physical thing even affect the physical universe and the and the it's kind of a rhetorical question uh but they expect you to make draw the conclusion that well it can't and my answer and a, a few other folks uh uh kurt de a philosopher said well, how, why not? <laughs> you know, because <laughs> well, it's not physical. Well, okay, but maybe there are bridge principles, bridge lines. There aren't all kinds of other physical things where one in one one feature of the universe can affect another feature of the universe, even though they don't seem to share anything in between, right? It's more complicated than that because usually you will find bridge conditions that interact with both of them, right? And but then my point here is well. Why isn't there, why couldn't there be similar bridge conditions between physical and non-physical? And, you know, if we didn't have anything like, you know, remote viewing or psychokinesis or whatever like that, if we didn't have any evidence that those, those things work, I'd probably be side with the physicalists, right? But I've seen these things work. I absolutely <laughs> know they work. So when a physicalist says, no, no, that can't possibly work. I said, well, it did. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> you know, and, uh, and at that point, it's time to start looking for what the bridge principles are, or at least try to. But the fact is, we people say, well, you can't research non-physical things. I said, well, if a, phys if a non-physical thing does have some impact on the physical universe, then you can. It may be indirect. It's kind of like trying to research uh, physical, you know, microparticles in physics. You can't look at those things. We have nothing that can allow you to look at them. So you have to do indirect measurement, like cloud chambers. You follow their tracks and their 
you yeah. smoke your chamber or you, you know, various things, you, you see their effects. Um, in fact, I just read an interesting article today about there's a, an astral body out beyond Pluto. And I can't think of the name of it. It's kind of an odd name. It's like a mini planet, even smaller than Pluto. It's got rings around it. Well, I've heard of it. I can't think of the name. <laughs> yeah, we can't see the rings. And so they had to indirectly detect that they were there, right? And that's kind of how they detect these exoplanets around distant uh, star systems is by, they can't take pictures of them. They can't get any imagery. They can't get any. So they measure them. They measure their existence indirectly, right? So why can't you do that between the non-physical and physical realm, assuming the existence of either? Because some people think the physical realm doesn't exist. The idealist, you know, is philosophical <laughs> idealism, but... Uh, I'm not quite that radical. <laughs> anyway. I like the fact that you, you know, work for everything when you're doing this, even with remote viewing, I mean, you're keeping track of like, say with, with these, um, with the assignments I'm doing, you're taking, you're keeping track of them with the homework assignments and with all the people you're working with and all the way through and with Hal put off, you've been, you guys have been documenting all of this along the way to prove more of this you know the physicalism isn't quite what they're saying it is <laughs> yeah it's it's you know I, doc, I there's lots of things i wish i documented and failed to but <laughs> i try to document what i can right reasonably um but i also am very cautious with the word prove right. people say well has that been scientifically proved and i'll say science doesn't prove anything and it doesn't proof is a nonsense word in science it's it applies in math it applies in the law, but it doesn't apply in science. Science doesn't prove anything. What they do is they develop evidence for or against competing hypotheses. And then if you come up with evidence that discounts a certain hypothesis, you get rid of that until you narrow things down to one hypothesis, and then that becomes a theory, essentially. Okay, And then you develop evidence to support that theory, and then the theory becomes more and more well-attested. But you never can know if your theory is actually fully true. It's impossible. In, in I, I did some, a fair amount of studying in philosophy science, so I understand this conundrum. Uh, Hempel has this, uh, uh, Carl Hempel is a, a, a philosopher in the uh, early, in the first half of the, uh, well, most of the, of the 1900s, right? Um, and uh, part of the Vienna Circle, um, his, let me see if I can remember his, his axiom, it was, uh, the only thing we know about, and I'm paraphrasing this because I can't remember exact wording, right? Right. One I'll let thing, you off the hook. <laughs> the one thing we are certain about in our current science is that it is false. Okay. Because either a theory is incomplete or it's wrong and it'll get replaced by another theory later on, like the original geocentric theory of the, Earth, which, of the solar system, which was that the Earth was the center and everything else went around it. Mm. That was replaced by the heliocentric theory, which is where the sun is the center and then everything goes around the sun right that's an example of how as as thomas Kuhn would say a, a a scientific revolution right one one better theory replaces the older theory that can happen with every theory that could happen with every theory we have today because we don't know what future discoveries how that might change what we understand and know about the universe today and so hempel says all we know is that they're false and he means false in the sense of either they're not complete there are holes in it that we some of which we know some of which we don't realize are holes and then there are some that we just know aren't right they're just as close as we have gotten so far right 
He says, the problem is that we have no idea what a fully realized science, in other words, a science that is actually correct, would look like, because that is somewhere out there in the, in the universe. You know, we haven't got there yet. And so we know ours is false. We don't, don't know what a true one would look like. And, and that's where we are. And that's, that's something I think everybody should really think about. Things are not quite as maybe you've been told and to look beyond and stretch your beliefs and, and look and, and learn. For me, I guess I always, I like to encourage people, learn, investigate, look it up, see what you can find out and, and pursue it and, and go down that road and don't worry about what you may discover, but just worry about looking at what can I discover and not worry about what the end result of it's going to be. And that's one thing I know we've been taking up a lot of your time. So well, let me let me respond to that because that's an okay. point. I absolutely agree with that. But I want to add a caveat. Okay. I tend to suggest you don't necessarily accept something as as true. A just because it's different than what other people are saying, and B because it sounds good. Because there are a lot of these other theories, squishy theories, non-scientific theories, some of those are, are probably right, or at least have elements of truth in them. But there's a bunch of stuff out there that's just wrong, right? Yeah. And and uh, it's particularly true in the fields we circulate in, because people have their favorite theories because they feel good, not necessarily because they ha actually are legitimate. Um, the dark side of that is conspiracy theories, where people think of some possible thing that could be happening, and then they assume because it's possible, it means it's really real. And, and in either case, it's really good to learn as much as you can about everything and learn how to think critically. That's absolutely crucial. Absolutely. Absolutely. Crucial. absolutely. I, I totally agree with you with that. Because like I said, there's so many things I used to believe. And the more I'm learning and the more I'm understanding, I don't believe most of what I used to believe. So, you know, and that's one of the other things people say, well, you're a hypocrite. Now you're saying this, like, no, it's just, you change I'm your beliefs. Than I was. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> we're all smarter. Yeah. yeah. So some you... are not, and that's the sad thing. There are some people who don't learn from their experiences. Yeah. They, they go on their emotions, exclusively on their emotions. They go for what feels good to them at the moment, and and I mean, you think about it. Uh, narcotics some narcotics feel good to you at the moment but downstream it's not they don't, they don't pay off you know so. no <laughs> so i just wanted to say thank you paul and i want to let people know so i just kind of just i'm just going to give a little overview there's for you for your site there's controlled remote viewing classes basic intermediate advanced and tune-ups um there's there are courses the practical application remote viewing courses there's associated remote viewing arv operational remote viewing, dowsing, sketching for remote viewers, a full course and one-day courses. You also have home study courses. You can learn technical dowsing, remote perception, basic operational training, and your author of the course, your book, and I'll say again, I've got it right here, The Essential Guide to Remote Viewing, the Secret Military Perception Skill, and it's anyone can learn. And for people to really go in, check out his website, rviewer.com go on his facebook youtube he's on twitter and linkedin and check out his stuff and honestly paul's like everywhere when you start looking for <laughs> i just can't keep my mouth shut you know <laughs> oh, 
you say to anybody who's looking at taking your course? Why would you encourage them to take your course? And what do you feel they'd learn from it? Well, the first thing I'd say is, of course, that depends on the person, what they need, what they're looking for, uh, what they're willing to submit to. Right? <laughs> um, but if you really are looking to uh, to learn remote viewing in general, controlled remote viewing in particular, I, mine is really the most complete and most vetted course of any uh, available out there. It's more expensive. I'm not going to tease you about that because I limit my classes to two students per instructor, which means most of my classes only have four students in them and two instructors. Um, and uh, only on rare occasions do I add more students, but I also add more instructors. So, <laughs> um, so you get the most direct attention. It, it is uh, a week week and change long, which most classes are just over the weekend of you know my competitors out there. Um, and I've been doing this longer than anybody else. I've been teaching control remote viewing longer than anybody else active out there. Uh, <clears throat> essentially quite a bit longer than anybody else out there. <clears throat> now, just an interesting sideline most people don't know. I've also continued to try and improve my classes. And I realized to do that, I also need to improve my own understanding and capacity in education, right? So I have taken classes in, uh, in how to teach better. Um, I've looked into a lot of different approaches to that. I've uh, continued my education in human perception and, and psychology and neuroscience, <clears throat> all of which crosswalk here. So, <clears throat> excuse me, my classes today are far better than my classes when I first started out. And those classes weren't bad at all. Um, so I, I learn as I go too, you know, so that's the way life is. And if you're not learning as you go and improving as you go, then then you're kind of missing out on the best things you can you can have when you're, you know, during the 70 to 80 to hopefully 90 years you get here, so. Absolutely, and I've got to attest when I was in his class, he was constantly like, I'm gonna tweak that for the next one. I'm gonna tweak that for the next one. So constantly going, but the classes are amazing. I highly encourage you to do that on his website and he's also got target uh targets on on his website you can go in and practice targets and just go through and look at his information use his book he has downloadable um different ones you can do online his classes if you can't make it in person his in-person classes well let me, let, me, let me add a caveat my fully okay. added crv classes are not available online and won't okay um, there's, uh, there are some essential elements in those that just aren't translatable into the digital world. My, uh, remote, uh, remote perception, basic operational training is actually a digital form of my basic course. Uh, but you know, it's a four, four hours of DVD training and, and my classes are 40 hours long. So you see that there's stuff left out, right? Oh yeah. But it's, it's way better it's... than nothing. <laughs> it's a great way to segue into it to see yeah. like, hey, what do I do? I like this, and is my would I want to take it further? Because, you know, for me, I just jumped in with both feet, you know, because why not? <laughs> but, well, and if you live in like, oh, say Tashkent or Azerbaijan, <laughs> right? You know, and, and you want to learn how to remote view, and you just can't get to the United States, um, then that's it. Actually, I've had a lot of folks email me and call me and say that, you know. For not being a live course, that was really, really useful. So, so it's it's a good approach too. So, 
Oh, absolutely. And I've recommended it to other people already. So with that, I just want to thank you so much, Paul. I appreciate your time. I know we went way over what we originally planned, so I apologize for that. But I just want to thank Paul for being here. And for those of you, make sure to check out his website, ourviewer.com. There's so much information you want to talk, look, in, uh, look into remote viewing further. And with that, I just want to thank you so much, Paul. And I want to remind everybody, remember the first and third Tuesdays of the month on Edge Talk Radio, and we have lots more to come. So thank you so much, Paul. Well, thank, and thank you. you. I should thank you for the opportunity to, to talk at length. Uh, <laughs> thank you all for bearing with us. And we there, I felt Paul had so much great information to share, and I'm hoping you will think so too. And with that, I wish all of you an absolutely amazing day, and I can't wait to have you listen next time. Thank you so much. Sportsmansguide.com has thousands of items available for delivery to your door. Hunting boots, ammo, guns, and camping supplies. Use coupon code HUNTING20 for $20 off your purchase of $100 or more. Join our Buyers Club and enjoy an extra 10% off most purchases and 5% off guns and ammo. Plus, every order over $49, including ammo, ships free. Visit Sportsmansguide.com and use coupon code HUNTING20 for $20 off $100 or more. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.